This is Dr. Todd May for the podcast series, Living Philosophy, brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. With Living Philosophy, every day isn't ordinary, it's inspiring. Living Philosophy is dedicated to exploring the way people have brought philosophy to life through significant experiences, changes, practices, and life-affirming realizations. My guest for this episode is the artist and former academic, Tina Rath. Tina, who has a Bachelor's of Fine Arts from the University of the Arts in Philadelphia and a Master's of Fine Arts from the Sandberg Institute in the Netherlands, is formerly the chair of the Jewelry and Metalsmithing Department at the Maine College of Art in Portland. In 2015, Tina made the bold decision to leave academia to pursue her artwork, which consists mainly of jewelry and drawing. Tina's work is included in the permanent collections of the Museum of Art and Design in New York the Mint Museum in Charlotte, North Carolina, and at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, Massachusetts. Her work has been exhibited internationally at the Stedlich Museum in Amsterdam and in Munich, Germany. Tina's work can also be found in numerous magazines and books and in many private collections. And she is represented by Siena Gallery in Lenox, Massachusetts, and by Gallery Noel Guillaumar in Montreal, Canada. But wait, there's more. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the traumatic toll it has taken with respect to the loss of human lives, Tina is working on Requiem. Requiem is a ritualized grief project and interactive ceremony that acknowledges those who have died from COVID-19 and celebrates their lives. We'll be learning more about the significance and meaning of this project on this podcast. Tina, welcome to Living Philosophy. Hi, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. Before moving to the Requiem Project, one of the common themes that crops up on this podcast is how my guests have made life-changing decisions that involve not only a lot of planning, but a great deal of courage and willingness to embrace uncertainty. Can you say more about how you came to the decision to leave academia and commit to working as an artist full-time? In 2010, I went on a sabbatical. And during that time, the school itself was deemed as like not sustainable. Um, in its current configuration. And so they had to um, declare financial exigency, which meant that everyone who had contracts didn't have those contracts anymore. And so many people lost their position at that time. And I was one of them. That kind of left me hanging in the middle of a sabbatical. And I spent the next couple of years kind of bouncing from teaching position to teaching position, which many people do. But for me, that's not a, that wasn't a sustainable life. I, I taught at the Pacific Northwest College of Art for a semester. And then I went out to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and taught there for a semester. And then I was offered, in a sense, like a dream job to teach up in Canada. And there was just a lot of complications about moving and working in another country. And at that point, I wasn't up for what they needed me to do. They needed to rearrange their whole school in a way to avoid what happened at Maine College of Art. And I thought they were going about it in the right way. And it was different than how Maine College of Art was handling it. But it was going to require a whole lot from me. And at that point, I was just kind of exhausted. And I also had been in my studio for the first time in years. I didn't have a studio during all that time I was bouncing around. And I was just starting to get into like, okay, some place of momentum, some place of like creative sweetness. And 
I thought, you know what, if I take this job, I'm going to lose that. And it's going to be another five years before I'm really back into the studio again with a big trans, you know, transcontinental move, I guess you could call it and all of that. So I spent three days throwing up, like literally, because I I knew that I, like making this decision that was, I was finally going to give up being a professor and, um, you know, giving up your identity that you've had for, oh, I don't know, 15 years and basically starting again, that's a really big decision. But nonetheless, that's the decision that I made. And that's, that's how I left academia. So um, somewhat of a forced decision, but also one that ultimately I made to not pursue that anymore. Looking from the outside in, I think a lot of people think academic jobs and academia is sort of a dream job. So especially if you are a student university and you see, oh, here are these professors talking about interesting things and getting paid for it, getting paid to do research. And a lot of times that's not the case because academic jobs are so hard to come by, at least permanent ones or tenure track ones. And there's often a lot of pressures, um, a lot of scrutiny, whether it's at the administrative level in terms of your performance as a teacher, but also in terms of your peers, in terms of your your publications, or in terms of the kinds of uh, artwork or galleries you present. And I had a friend who was uh, an artist, a musician, and also trying to do a PhD at the same time. And he was joking around and said, why did I choose the two worst career trajectories in the sense that both of them involve people just commenting on how, you know, critically commenting on how your work is. You can't take much more of that, but also it was uh, trying to shift from an academic mode to an artistic mode he found very difficult. So in your own life, when you first got the artistic spark, I don't know if you want to talk about that, how you came into uh, working with jewelry and metalsmithing and drawing and so forth. Was ac- the academic path sort of, well, maybe this will complement me in my uh, work as an artist and hopefully will be sustainable in terms of the providing financial, meeting financial needs, et cetera, and I can work on my art uh, on the side. Um, it, was that kind of how it went? And then did you find, as you just sort of indicated, that uh, the academic just impinged upon your artistic ability and uh, creativity, as it were. The short answer to that question is no. Like, I didn't know that one could be a professor when I graduated from undergraduate. And I don't know how I missed that critical piece of information, but I just like to me, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I want to be a teacher. And, you know, I'm going to use my my art practice as a way to become a professor. And I didn't even know that that was like a, a the track of a job or a job track, I guess you could say. I can't remember a time that I didn't make stuff. I was first introduced to the idea that one could make jewelry as an art discipline in high school. And, um, and then I went to the University of the Arts. And when I graduated from there, I you know, I had a, a series of kind of lots of little jobs, all sort of art related. Um, and then eventually a friend of mine, she was a professor at um, San Francisco State. And I was like, oh, I, that sounds like an interesting job, right? Because I like to talk about ideas. I like to work with people. I like to kind of turn people on to things. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool. 
And then I realized I had to get a master's degree and in order to teach um, at the college level, you know, you have to have a terminal degree in, in your field. So that's when I decided to go to graduate school, but not to not so that I could teach. It was kind of like a it was like time, you know, like I had reached the end of what I could do on my own from what I knew and from the support that I had. And so I, when I went to graduate school, it wasn't so I could teach, but I knew that that would make that possible. And then, you know, I just got freaking lucky. I applied to one job, Maine College of Art, and I got that job. I mean, who does that? Like, that's unheard of. And, you know, being in the right place, right time, you know, I got that job. And I, I moved to, to Maine. And it is, it is a dream job in many ways, if you take out all the stuff that doesn't make it dreamy. <laughs> Right. Because what I miss about academia are the colleagues, the, you know, all the like talking about interesting ideas in the hallway or or asking someone like, oh, I need to I need to know how to do this process. Can you show me? Because I know that's what you do. And I, I do miss working with students. Um, I miss the churning of ideas. I miss turning people on to things. I actually have a private student right now that's been studying with me for her semester because she has, you know, she was like doing college in her, in her high school bedroom because of COVID. I gave her a year, like a year in, in six months because I was just so jazzed to have a, 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 a hungry student in front of me again. It was like, I kind of forced, like stuffed all this stuff down her because <laughs> I knew our time was limited. But the, the part about academia that, that is not pretty is the competition for, I don't know what the right word is. My husband says um, the politics of academia are so vicious because they matter so little. They're really like inside the academic institution and you get caught up, caught up in like trying to protect your tiny piece of pie rather than uh, really getting caught up in, in recognizing that we're all there to work together to make this institution vibrant and compelling and relevant. And somewhere along the way, that spirit was, at least on my felt awareness, that spirit was lost in my institution. And, um, you know, it was in it was in tumultuous space. It's no secret that they had like four presidents in seven years. You know, the dean was always coming and going. Um, so there was a lot of tumultuousness in that institution. It has way settled down now, as I, I, I hear. I don't, I don't know for sure because I'm not in the middle of it. But it just made it a rough place to work um, because I, I was spending energy on stuff I didn't, I didn't think was the right place to put one's energy. I know with academic institutions, from my own experience, there is a I think there maybe in the mid 20th century and earlier, there was a, a different kind of ethos where one could be concerned about one's own research and still be a part of a vibrant community. I think today, certainly as I experienced it, institutions aren't very good at nurturing the kind of collegiality and sense of being a part of an academic intellectual community, creative community. And what ends up happening is you get these academics who just basically sit in their office and because academic research is so focused on one's own reputation, then that just becomes problematized and augmented, magnified even more. So you get this kind of distorted effect of people just only focusing 
on their own kinds of research. The other things that come in, so in the UK, um, they, they try to measure the quality of research. And I think that just exacerbates the situation, uh, how individuals see themselves. And um, it becomes very toxic very fast. And I'm also, I wanted to ask you about the creative process that you go through. Uh, I, I know there's not probably any just one answer, but I'm interested in the ways in which artists and artisans and musicians work with the kind of materials they use. I'm just thinking of, there's a remarkable letter from Mozart who talks about the way in which sometimes he would get an idea for, if idea is the right word, an idea for a symphony. And he gives an account of uh, being out for a walk in the countryside. And then suddenly he says the whole symphony was in his head and he had just had to go back and write it down. I know music is abstract like that, but with uh, working with jewelry and drawing, is it um, I'm sure, again, there's probably no one answer, but I'm thinking there's kind of two ways in which the creative process might work. One is that you have an idea and then you take that idea and you you manifest it through the materials. Or have you had those occasions where you, you're looking at a material and suddenly you see something speak to you from the material, whether it's marble or maybe it's a shape like a circle or something like that? Uh. <laughs> or if you don't want to reveal your secrets, that's okay. As well. No, 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 no. There, it's not. It's not a. It's not. There's not a secret um, by any stretch. And I think that's an excellent question because you know people always ask me like, how do you get your ideas, or how do you, how can you sit down and just like do that one thing for hours on end? There's a lot of research that goes into developing an idea. So it's not like I just wake up and I have the idea fully formed in my head and like, then I just get to work. Um, not at all. There's a, a lot of reading and sometimes image calling for inspiration. Um, a lot of, I'm just going to say it again. There's a lot of reading. <laughs> it's helpful to like to read. And, you know, we have more books than we have anything else around here. And, and the reading is wide. It kind of gets narrowed down as I'm trying to understand like one facet of the idea. And then it gets big again as I'm like, okay, now I understand that. I'm going to go back out again. And then I'm going to focus in again. And it's sort of this, like a funnel in a way. Like it gets broad and then it, it funnels down and then it gets broad again. Then I start sketching and and uh, like on paper, but I'll, I do a lot of my um, sketching in three dimensions. So I make a lot of models. I make models out of paper. I make models out of this like carving foam. I make models out of metal. I make models out of wood. You know, if you come to the studio, there's just models everywhere, which is kind of cool. Um, and I have boxes and boxes of models from before. I've had to throw some away over the years just because I've moved a lot and, you know, they get broken because they're models. And then sometimes when I start working in the material, then the material tells me like, oh, I really want to do that. I can I can do what you're asking me to do. And then sometimes the material fights me and the material is like, I don't, I don't, you're asking me to do something I don't know how to do. Or maybe like I'm asking it to do it in a way that it wants to do it, but I'm I'm asking the wrong way. And so I have to go and figure out like YouTube is great, right? You can like ask YouTube anything. It's YouTube, how do I ebonize wood? And then you just watch a video about it. <laughs> so great. I don't know what we did without YouTube. Yeah, so that's that's kind of how it goes. Um, and and then oftentimes I have to go back and, and research again because I need to figure out, like I start to put the things together and I'm like, ooh, this isn't this isn't quite saying what I want it to say. And it's really the artist's responsibility. I have this conversation a lot with um, especially 
with students and and my my um, student that I have now in that people say like, oh, well, you know, isn't art up for interpretation? Isn't art up to the viewer to see what they want to see? And yeah, kind of. But my job as the artist is to know what I'm saying, know what I want to communicate inside and out, and then be able to work with materials and space in a way that helps you understand what I'm thinking. Then we can have a conversation about that, right? But let's say let's say I want to talk about the fact that there are birds in the sky, but everything that I've made makes you think of pizza. So have I done like my job well? Probably not. Because if you're not like what the viewer is looking at is nowhere near birds in the sky. And so my job is to to be as clear and let's see, to be as as clear in what I want to communicate and then be as facile in my materials as I can be so that at least we're going to be on the same page about what we're talking about. And then we can talk about the complexity of that page. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I'm also wondering about, I know it might be difficult to say that an artwork is finished, but when it's actually completed to a certain extent and it's presented to the public for, for viewing it and engagement, is there a different sense of finally this, this artwork has left me now, it's out of my control, and now it is it is its own creature, as it were? Is there a sense like that? And and if you do have that sense, what what kind of reflection happens in your process as, as an artist? Is it um, I know some some actors when they when they make a film and it gets made, they just they, they don't want to see the, the film at all, that they're done, that their their artistic process is one of acting and that's it. They don't want to see the final product. Um, what goes on uh, from your perspective at having made jewelry and, and worked with drawing and, and other materials? The work has a life. So the the work has a life in my studio space. And then when it goes out into the world, um, the work has its own life, right? It's sort of like, like my stepkid, right? He's 20. He's really different around me and my husband than he is around his friends. When I'm looking at the work and I've been looking at it for months and months and months and thinking about it for months and months. And, you know, I know all the things that went wrong and I know all the ways that I fixed it. And, you know, at some point I decide, yeah, it's done. I, you know, for me, the, I think the work tells me when it's done. And my my job is to listen to the work. You know, yeah, you could always go back and a little this, a little that, but that's just like that weird brain control thing that thinks it can always be better when it's just it when when it's done, it's done. Um, and so then when it goes out into the world, now it starts to it starts to take a life on its own because now the work is interacting with people who haven't looked at it for months and months and thought about it for months and months and researched all these ideas and know that there's like a whole bunch of other work coming or still in process. And that's when that's when I really know, like, did I do my job well? And if the conversations that are engendered by the work, if the commentary that comes, if it's if it's in the wheelhouse of, of what I'm talking about and the and the work can live in that space well, um, then that's when I know I've done my job well. There's been times, uh, painful times, I will say, and I, you know, probably all artists have had this at one time or another, where the work goes out in the world, you thought it was done, you thought it was clear. <laughs> And it goes out into the world and you're like, whoa, fuck, that is, n- no, it's not done. <laughs> that, 
that I, that that cake is half baked, you know. <laughs> and then it's in the public. And then what can you do, right? What can you do? Um, that's a hard place to be. Uh, it's humbling for sure. Um, humility is good, but uh, feeling humbled in the in that way, oh, that wasn't. No, that's hard. That's hard. There's a French philosopher named Paul Ricoeur who talks about what you just described. He, you know, philosophers like to give uh, technical phrases to everything, but he calls that the autonomy of the work of art, which means that once it's been created, it has its own life because you don't know who's going to engage with it and then how they're going to interact with it. And at the same time, he doesn't want to allow for, uh, you can just read into whatever you want. He's not that kind of a relativist. He wants to also say that although there's this freedom of, of the work of art, there are going to be certain aspects of it which constrain the way in which we can talk about its significance. And I'm not very good with visual mediums. I'm, I'm a bit of a cretin when it comes to looking at art and trying to understand what's going on. But with literature, I, I guess I feel a little bit more home with that. But certainly with literature, you can see those kinds of constraints that Ricoeur talks about. You know, the, the characters are going to be doing certain things, uh, how they act, what they say, and the, and and so forth. But with with the half-baked artwork, do you ever feel the, the motivation to try and get a public outlet to defend or to qualify what's happened? Or is it sort of out of sight, out of mind? I'm just going to move on with the next project and that's it. I'm thinking about a, a particular piece that I made called Wanderlux. And uh, it was a great idea, but it did not, um, I didn't have enough time to develop it. It was a really big idea. It just, it, I just didn't have time to really get it just right. And when it went out into the world, it was not well received. And it was at the time that like my life was thrown into that wash machine of losing my position and trying to figure out what was next. And so having a, a very big project kind of fall flat at the same time was rough. And so there was a part of me that that in some ways did want to stand up and be like, you guys just don't get this. But again, if everyone doesn't get it or if if everyone is kind of saying the same thing or it's, you know, like nobody finds it magical, it's probably not them. <laughs> and so um, it was very humbling um, at a time when I was already kind of feeling pretty down and it was it was rough. And so in that case, after a moment of trying of thinking like, OK, like I do need to defend this or push this forward, I, it quickly turned into like, I just want this to go away. And, and I want to move on. And I didn't also have the space at that point. So that was right when I was right when I lost my position and I, I lost my studio. I lost my home. I lost everything. I was like sleeping on friends' couches and, on, you know, their 12 year old would move out of the room for a week so I could have a bedroom. And like I had no space in my head to figure out how to remake this piece better. I didn't, I didn't have space to physically do it. It went into a box or a bunch of boxes. It was a big piece. It's like a big wall piece went into a bunch of boxes and it's in those boxes today. <laughs> and, and by the time everything came around and I had my studio back again, um, you know, that was three and a half, four years before I had a, like a bona fide studio with all my tools and everything. I just wasn't in that place anymore. And I, I like every now and then I think about that piece and, uh, you know, 
but I'm, I'm, I'm like so far away from that place that I, I, I don't want to defend it. I don't want to remake it. It's kind of a bummer, but that's what happens. You know, you, not everything that comes out is great. And, and it's important to give oneself like a, a, a generous failure rate. I like to give myself like a 75 or 80% failure rate. It's just better when that failure doesn't go out into the world so big. <laughs> and that one went out into the world big. And so it was a very public failure. Uh, and that was painful for sure. I'm not going to lie. It was painful. The stakes are high when you're an artist because of that that public aspect. And there, psychologists and philosophers often try to talk about these kinds of moments and artifacts and monuments positively. And although they're referring to private people who experience something and they they identify with an object or or some kind of uh, event that becomes inscribed in their memory, uh, we're again we're talking about an artistic work that's in the public. But is there any way that Wonderlux could be seen at some point as a positive artifact of the transition you made from uh, leaving academia to, I want to talk about in a few moments, about this move into this, what seems a very significant trajectory of a collective artwork that's not only in the public sphere, but it's actually explicitly engaging with the public because the event to which it's referring is a global event. It's the pandemic. Uh, but before we move to Requiem, is there is there any way in which Wanderlux might be recovered or retrieved in a way that might be more positive? Well, I like that spin. Thanks. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like any of this happens in an isolated vacuum. So, you know, one piece leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. So the things that I learned from Wanderlux, um, I'm sure are involved in what I'm doing now. One thing I learned from Wanderlux is that when you work bigger, you you need a collective of people helping you because you can't do all the things by yourself. You know, drawing and making jewelry, at least the way I work, you're really focused and the amount of space that um, the jewelry object happens in is actually very small. Um, it's, you know, there's a thing, something called a bench pin, which is where you kind of hold your pieces and you file with your pieces there and you saw your pieces there. Most of the making happens on this bench pin that's, oh, I don't know, depending on, on, on your pin, anywhere from two inches wide to four inches wide and, you know, the same depth. And that's attached to your bench. But really, that's like a very tiny space for stuff to happen. And what I do, did notice with, with Wanderlux is that, you know, I was still making lots of little tiny objects that went onto a bigger space. So it was like about it, like an accumulation or an accretion of, um, of, of bits. But I needed to think bigger. In, in terms of how this thing was going to be presented and how it was going to be developed. And so I think that learning, like seeing that and seeing where the failures were or the limits of my imagination at that moment, or the sense that I didn't, I don't know, I have a tendency to think that I have to do everything myself. And that comes not from being an artist, that just comes from the way I was brought up. And it's really helpful to ask for help. <laughs> It's really helpful to to realize what you don't know and figure out who can who knows that and then get them to help you. 
I love that because that accentuates something in philosophy that I, I really find important. A lot of philosophers in the traditional philosophy likes to make it out that we are these intellect, we have this power of reasoning and we can become self-sufficient in some way if we get the right reasons and beliefs and so forth. But then a lot of other philosophers like to emphasize, well, that might be what we strive for, but actually we're very fragile. Uh, we're very vulnerable human beings. And so it's important to remind ourselves that we rely on others to be able to do the things that we want to do. And this opens a real interesting segue to the current project, which is also huge in magnitude, uh, as we just talked about, because it deals with the pandemic in, in so many lives, if not every human life on the planet has been affected by the pandemic in some way, some positive and some negative, of course. So can you say more about what Requiem is and what's involved with it in all its facets and, and aspirations? So I'm going to back up just a little bit to what you just said about somehow there's an aspiration to be this individual that is not in community. But I think what what the pandemic has taught everyone is really how interconnected we are and how much we need community. The isolation and the loneliness has, you know, taken a toll on the world at large, even if like I'm very introverted, so I'm comfortable being alone. I spend a lot of time alone. My husband is introverted, so we spend a lot of time alone together. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that that I want to be lonely. And loneliness is a is a big problem, and it, it's it's had a like a huge mental toll on people. And so thinking about and and living through like being afraid of people, being afraid to go to the store, being afraid to leave your house, being afraid to hug your friend, your 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 sister, your mother, right? Because in in the beginning when we didn't really know how this stuff was moving around through the world and we, everyone was really confused about how to kind of handle it, we just became afraid of each other. And that's a really hard place for humans to be in. We're very social. We need community. And although like this idea of being the rugged individual is some sort of myth in America that one wants to aspire to, no, it is just a myth. And why would we want to aspire to that. Why don't we want to aspire to creating community and working collectively together for the greater good, recognizing that we're all interconnected and that we all need each other for big things and small things, right? Like, oh, wow, finally, we recognize that the person that delivers our, you know, boxes is valuable because that's our lifeblood to the world at large, right? That's how we're getting stuff now, right? Whereas before that person was just like, I don't know, did you even notice that person? I mean, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, I don't know. But now all of a sudden we're celebrating that person and we're, we're thinking that the person at the grocery store who is literally putting their life on the line every freaking day so that I can get milk or whatever, all of a sudden, like that person becomes really important. Whereas before, maybe we chatted, whatever, but then we walked away and didn't think about that person ever again until the next time we bought milk from that person. Maybe we remember that person, maybe we don't. That's a long way to get around to saying that I recognize that we need to work together. And all of the fighting about do we wear masks, do we don't wear masks, it was incom it's incomprehensible to me, right? If you know something is going to, if you know something is going to be beneficial to another person, and it really is not a big deal, why wouldn't you do it? 
why wouldn't you do it? Right. <laughs> I just didn't get that. I didn't get that. So Requiem, to answer your question more concretely, Requiem is a, a ritualized grief project and it's a communal ceremony that, that honors those that have died from COVID-19 as well as celebrates their lives. And the project has a worldwide scope um, that gives us all the necessary opportunity to grieve together while offering support to those that have passed from this state of being into whatever state of being comes next. And this idea that we haven't been able to even properly grieve because of this pandemic, we haven't been able to come together to attend a funeral. I, I attended a Zoom funeral. How weird is that? I'm, I had to wake up at three o'clock in the morning because the funeral was in England. And, you know, I'm like have this bird's eye view looking down at what's happening. And I was so grateful to be able to be present in that way. And, you know, the, the family members who were there, like they knew we were there too, but we weren't there. And this like mediated space of the screen that we've all become so used to everybody just being little boxes. That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, so many people died alone. They couldn't be with their family members or their loved ones. You know, they said goodbye over the phone. Oh my God. Like I actually did say goodbye to my brother over the phone a couple of years ago. And so I know what that feels like. And I know how, um, how, how not, not enough that is. Right. And so this project is really about creating a community for us all to come together in some way to really process what has happened. Because when it's so out there, when it's other, it's a, just a big number or it's happening and it's not happening in your community. So it's not really happening. It is happening and it's not abstract. And it, what happens in New York happens to me. What happens to me happens to you because we're all interconnected. And the failure of, of our country right now, if I could be so bold and not to get off track, is that we don't recognize that we're so interconnected. That's the thinking that is behind Requiem. Well, it's that point in the podcast where we take a break and hear from our sponsors. So we'll be back in just a few moments. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Contact her at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. Hello, this is Martin Bunsell. Like Todd May, I'm a philosopher interested in engaging with more than academics. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I think about philosophy as I hike sections of the Pacific Crest Trail. 
You can do that by reading my new book, Thinking While Walking, available on Amazon in both paper and on Kindle. A kind reader writes, Reading this book is like a leisurely stroll with your favorite professor, an opportunity to weave philosophical musings with an awe of nature. It is both provocative and delightful. I hope you'll read it and feel the same way. If so, you can follow my philosophical blog and more at mbunzel.com. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at the letter H, the letter I, the letter N, the letter R, the letter L dot org. That's www.hinrl.org. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. If you're interested in organizational improvement in view of meaningful work, virtues, compassion, and self-development, contact philosophytoyou.com to get the process of transformation and innovation We can help identify your goals and how to achieve them based on your organizational strengths and potential. We can also provide staff seminars for learning and development that promote group dynamics, group learning, and not just mere instruction. Let's start embracing life in the workplace. Visit us at www.philosophy2.com. And now, back to our show. Uh, to go back to the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, he, he recognizes that with the grieving process, uh, it has to be recognized explicitly, usually by some kind of symbolic event. So a symbolic event can be a, a, a burial rite or um, something that I participated in. I was absolutely astounded by in a good way as I had a close friend pass away. And uh, they had several memorials for him in, in the different states he had lived in throughout his his life. And he was he was very... Um, big person, not big physical wise, but he had a big personality. Everyone loved him. And I, I attended one of the memorials in Santa Barbara, California, and the family did the uh, this ritual, which I understand is part of the Quaker tradition, where you have a spiral set out and the chairs sit along the spiral and the family's closest to the center. And then the friends sit on um, as it goes out towards the, uh, well, circumference more or less. And the family get to speak first. They stand up and speak and share memories, sad and, and happy. And then it goes through and anyone can stand up after the family speaks. And that I was I was really genuinely shocked in a good way about how, how cathartic and effective that was because it was a process of finally you can recognize your grief in a public way with others through the power of not only sitting together, but through the power of testimony, of, of, of sharing stories. And I think what also, to come back to Ricoeur's point, uh, he, he sees that this process of grieving when it's done well 
is also a process of re remembering. So I think he takes a phrase from the psychologist Sigmund Freud. He says, the work of mourning or grieving is also when done rightly is a work of remembering. And so I think what Recur wants to drive towards is, although the mourning is very individual, although you could have an event that's like a pandemic that affects everybody around the world, the work of mourning is still an individual exercise, but if it's done properly through symbolic means and so forth, um, then it becomes a work of remembering for the whole community, the global community. And I'm, I'm saying that because Requiem has these, I'm looking over the description in your video on it, and there'll be links to all this information in the, the written part of the podcast on, the, on our website. But you have set this up quite distinctly with some very interesting symbolic features. If I might sort of uh, open it up for, for further discussion, but I know Requiem involves uh, making necklaces from necklaces from carved and ebonized wood, but also um, creating circles for all the victims. And to date, as we're speaking, I think the death, the global death rate is over 4 million. So that's, that's quite a project. Can you say more about, about the symbolic aspect of Requiem? I did look up that number this morning and it's 4.07 million people worldwide. That's as of this morning, that's the official deaths, right? So I'm pretty sure that that number is actually higher. I'm sure there are people that have passed away from COVID that never got to the hospital, never got registered anywhere. And I, I just know it. Requiem has two components. It has a, a prayer mala and it has a golden circle drawn for each of the 4.07 million people that have passed away to date as of this morning. I'll start with the golden circles first, because that's really the community aspect of this project. So uh, the golden circles represent um, one circle for each person. And those circles act as a placeholder until the name of the person is learned. And then once the name of the person who has passed away is learned, that name is scribed on one circle. And in this way, it's a very small but profound, compassionate act to write the name of the person who has died. And then if I don't have the name, but you visit the project, you can write the name of your person on that circle. So hopefully over time, the idea is that um, as many names as possible will be gathered and written on the circles. That being said, I'm also pretty clear that getting 4.07 million names is gonna be pretty difficult. And so the circle itself acts as that placeholder, as that acknowledgement of that person who has passed. Of course, I did the math, like how many circles I would have to draw every day to get four, <laughs> four million circles. It's a lot of days. Um, it's almost impossible. It would take me years. And I also recognize that this is the ceremonial part. And so I've started these compassion drawing events, which I've had, I've had one. One has actually happened. There are two more on the books and a couple more in process. And so at these compassion drawing events, um, I show up with the paper and I show up with the gold ink. Uh, gold is chosen specifically because um, people 
the, the, the way that people illuminate long past their actual physical life is really important to convey this light that everyone has and how that light sort of is bigger than their physical presence here on earth. Um, so then we sit down with the gold paint, we sit down with the paper, after a brief meditation and any questions about the work and a, a brief demonstration, because a lot of people that show up have never held a brush in their hand. They're not artists, no artistic background is needed. Anyway, so then we start drawing. And at first people are really like afraid in a way to like make an incorrect circle as if that's a thing. But then they start to loosen up. They start to quiet down. Internally, there's a little chat, chatting, but not a lot. You know, it's not a big like social event in a way, but we're just there in community, drawing these circles. And you know, I was, I was so, um, it was so beautiful. Is is the only way I can explain it. It was so beautiful to feel, to feel the energy in the room, kind of concentrate and condense and become really focused much in the way that when you're meditating, the mind starts to concentrate and condense onto the breath or to whatever the object of your focus is. In this case, it's with circle making. And there's this lovely quality that's a lot like sitting out in the California sun in late afternoon in September, where it's warm and not too hot, but, but you feel like you're kind of wrapped in a light cashmere blanket and you're, everyone is in this space together and the hands are moving. And that it lasted like an, like an hour and a half. I, I was really, I didn't recognize that, that people were going to be able to focus that long who don't have meditation practices or other kinds of focus practices. And what was also really amazing and, and I didn't, you know, of course, but I didn't think about it ahead of time is how individual each person's circles are. So your circles are different than my circles and how much ink goes on a brush and how much water somebody might use. And so in the end, when the, the drawings themselves are 50 by 72 inches, so that's a pretty big piece of paper and three or four people would work on a, pa on a drawing. And so the drawing itself became this rich tapestry of, of a whole variety of circle forms. And each, each, you could see the section that a person worked on much like a quilt. And in the end, uh, the, each circle was as individual as that person. So it was like a fingerprint, if you will. And then when they would like, they would lay them all out together to see all next to each other. It was so fantastic. It's so, and they were so uh, luminescent and it was just, it, it was really moving is all I can say. And um, that's not just for me alone. Um, one person came up to me and said, you know, I thought this was going to be a really sad event and my husband didn't want to come because he didn't think he could handle it. And yet this was the most peaceful, beautiful experience ever. And many people are like, let me know when the next one is. I want to come draw more circles. I could do this all day. This is so healing. Thank you so much for making this happen. And, you know, it was in that moment that if I was ever unclear about the necessity of this project, I'm clear now. It's needed. It's needed. And that simple act of marking that circle, powerful. 
eventually I'm going to have to start writing the names. I've been collecting the names, um, you know, kind of on the side. It's really hard to get everybody's name. I need a lot of help with that the world over. But it's, I think it's when the writing of the names happens is when it's really going to, you know, because those are real people with real names. With these kinds of things, we need everybody or as many people involved as possible to make it work. So could you just state for the audience some things that um, they could do if they're interested that would help with the Project Requiem immensely? So gathering the names is what's the most difficult because of the HIPAA laws in the U.S. And I'm not sure what the laws are in other countries. I can't just call up the county coroner and and ask them to give me all the names of the people who died from COVID. That's not allowed. And so at this point, I can only get the names that have been publicly printed or talked about on the radio or on a television program, uh, NPR for a while. Every day they would um, highlight um, the life of, you know, five or six people that passed away and talk about them. And so I can get those names um, like, uh, you know, this sounds silly, but on uh, the last uh, last season of Grey's Anatomy is all about COVID-19. And on the episode five, uh, they scroll a whole bunch of names of people who've died from COVID. And so I'm like screenshotting those names. I And I, I had reached out to someone who had worked on Grey's Anatomy. Um, you know, they don't work there on that program anymore because it's over. But um I was like, how do I get that, like the full list of those names? And he was like, I don't know. Like that's, I don't know where that comes from. Right now, I'm gathering all the names I can that have come in like big lists because then I can get a chunk. But it's really the person, the the non-famous person or the person that didn't end up on, you know, the Grey's Anatomy program, like that name, how do I get those names? So I need people to reach out into their communities, to um, ask their friends, uh, find out who has passed away, and then send those names to me. And you can send those names directly to me to uh, requiemproject2021 at gmail.com. And then I will put them in my you know, master list. That's, that's the hardest thing. That's, that's the thing I really need, really need help with. So for our audience members, the uh, contact information for Tina will be in the written blurb for the podcast. So please do take the time to uh, look at the the written information and follow up with as necessary. And and if you have any questions, I'm assuming they can contact you with any questions about Requiem. And certainly uh, people can reach out to me and I can help facilitate some kind of process of of working on the project. Can we now also talk about the prayer process? the the paramala that you uh, mentioned earlier that has 108 beads that have been made out of uh, ebonized wood. Many spiritual traditions utilize prayer beads or a prayer mala. Mala means uh, necklace. Um, And many of these traditions have 108 beads that these prayer malas are used for devotional prayer or meditation, kind of counting, counting your, your meditations or counting your mantras, much like a rosary, which people may be more familiar with, where you say your Hail Marys and, and your prayers in that way. Um, 108 is a really significant number and has many meanings depending on the spiritual practice. 
Um, and sort of the general purpose, uh, we could we could talk forever about the meaning of 108, but in this case, it includes this understanding of the wholeness of existence and the basis of all creation. So the prayer mala itself um, is helpful in meditating on the dead. Uh, and in Tibetan Buddhism, they understand states of existence as bardos, B-A-R-D-O. So right now we're in, in a state of existence and in a bardo. Um, the bardo that's most referenced or commonly understood is the bardo between the moment of death and the place of rebirth. And so moving through the bardo is moving through this state of being where the soul will meet all manner of beneficial and terrifying apparitions to kind of process their karma um, and before they take on a new existence. And the Buddhists believe that we, that those of us who are left here on earth, we can uh, send out our prayers and well wishes to support those who are moving through the bardo in order to help them have a, a, an easier time and to have a more auspicious reincarnation. I just want to put a plug in. There's a really wonderful book called Lincoln and the Bardo that was very popular uh, a couple of years ago, which makes makes this idea very user-friendly to understand this idea. And it's about um, President Lincoln's son who passes away and his time in the Bardo. So I want to come back to an earlier uh, concern I had about the artist and the creative process. Can you say more about the shapes, the significances of the shapes and material you're working with for the Paramola? The beads themselves are carved out of lime wood. That's a very easily carved wood. And because I had to make so many of them, um, I chose an, uh, a, a very forgiving wood. Normally, I work in African blackwood, which is a beautiful black color, but uh, it's hard as hell and um, it takes a really long time to carve. So um, the lime wood is easy to carve, and then I can ebonize it, which is a process of chemically turning it black. So it's not a paint. It's actually like a chemical reaction to the wood itself. And so it's more than uh, it's more than just the surface, which I think is kind of also important. The shapes themselves, they're based on combinations of the circle and the square. And this is um, elemental geometry that is also considered sacred architecture, which is woven into the fabric of all creation. And it's believed that these forms create harmony within and amplify our spirit. And the circle represents the divine life force and is a symbol of vitality and wholeness and perfection. And the square is a symbol of physical matter and stability. And really the, the combinations are endless on what forms you can make by combining just these two very simple geometric shapes. Um, alongside the, uh, the forms, there are um, 12 clear quartz, um, almost like uh, egg forms, tiny egg forms. Clear quartz was chosen because clear quartz is uh, believed to have the highest vibration of all the stones. So stones, some, some people believe that stones have vibration, like energetic vibrations. I do. Um, and so clear quartz 
um, is able to offset any of the negative energy uh, around it. And that that stone is often referred to as the master healer. And the quartz forms themselves, these egg forms, they represent fertility, rebirth, even immortality, and symbolize the complete circle of life and death of sacred potential and time. And so when all of these things are coming together, then collectively, we can send our prayers out to those moving through the bardo to support them as they take on whatever, wherever they're going to go, depending on, you know, your belief system. And are these 108 necklaces going to be on display anywhere or are they, um, are they going to be brought to the communal events where the circle drawing is, is taking place as well? They won't be with the in the communal drawing events, but um, they will be shown uh, with the drawings when the drawings are shown, like at not at, at events, but like at at presentations of this. So the drawings and the malas go and the mala goes together. One of the problems with the pandemic, I think, is that you hear a lot about everyone going through the process of lockdown. You hear about the infections and the deaths. And very quickly, the numbers become so great, they just start to run away from you. And it now just becomes, as the cliche goes, it's just a number. Can you say more about how Requiem addresses that kind of problem or that kind of uh, habit of thinking we might fall into? That's the most important part of this project. You know, four million, what is that? Right. It's a it's a huge number. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know what that feels like. Um, and so they become incomprehensible. And like you said, it's just a number, but it's not a number. Right. The numbers tell us how many, but they don't tell us who. And we can't have like a felt awareness of that who because we don't see 4 million people. We can say like, oh, that's the size of, I don't know, whatever state. But what does that mean? That's also abstract too. I think it's it's necessary to see what 4 million looks like. There's a, there's a really wonderful um, impromptu memorial, I guess you could say, just down the street from me where this guy decided to put either a cross or um, a Jewish star for each soldier, each person who died in Iraq, right? And it's not, it was ongoing for a long time. And the whole hillside now is filled up with crosses and Jewish stars to acknowledge these deaths. And so when you start to see like, wow, that's a lot of crosses, that's a lot of of Jewish stars, you go to, you know, any war cemetery, right? And you see how many, like how many people that actually is. When this project is finished, and I hope there is an end date right now, people are still dying. And so there is no end date. But when this project is complete, to be like, I don't know how big a space is going to have to be to house all these drawings, but to be able to physically be in the presence of 4 million somethings, 4 million circles, then you're going to know how big this is and how, how important this is and that it is not possible to just get back to normal because those 4 million people and counting are not with us. That's the most important part is to really understand what this means and that it doesn't have to affect you, 
personally. It doesn't have to be your sister, your mother, your, God forbid, child for that death to be meaningful, for that death to, to register that that was an important person who passed. I love how the uh, project, the collective project turns a number into a who. It's in everyday life, we're often seen from, uh, by others as what, uh, you know, what you do, how you look, how you present yourself. But then there is this mysterious quality about who you are. And we don't even, as individuals, we don't know who we are. It's, it's a lifetime of, of discovery, which, which of course never ends until we transition uh, into the next phase of, of, uh, of being whatever that might be. But it's a wonderful way this how this project is just conceiving uh, how we're all interconnected through um, something that through the pandemic, through this, this catastrophic event, as it were, and making it real, tactile, concrete, and meaningful. And I've also was thinking when you're discussing what it would look like to see all these, these drawings, these circles in one place. And what came to mind was the hangers that are used to store the Goodyear blimp. And if anyone from the Goodyear Corporation is listening to this, I wonder if they'll be interested in possibly hosting Requiem in its finished or more or less finished form. That would be wonderful. Yes, please call me. One, one other thing I wanted to say about the names as well is that in ancient Egypt, the name was really important. So the name is written on everything. And, you know, we know this from just that small boy king, Tutankhamun, right? And his name is on absolutely everything that was in that, in his burial um, site. And for them, someone couldn't pass without their name. So they needed to take their name with them. It needed, their being needed to be named in order for them to have new life. And so that's where the names become important too, that that we don't get lost in this abstract, cold, dehumanizing number, but that we take the name too. It's that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests two questions. And the first one is, has there been any one philosophy, idea, or philosopher, or as we just talked about Tibetan Buddhism, any religion that has been inspirational or motivational for you in the course of your life? I have a a 25-year yoga practice. And that yoga practice started as a way to relieve some back problems from an early career of dancing. And over time, the yogic practice has um, unfolded to be a very rich and meaningful um, way of living. So like all the people in their complicated yoga postures on Instagram and, you know, on the beach or whatever, that, that to me is not the yogic practice. The yogic practice is a very intimate practice. And it's a very, uh, it's a practice about coming home to yourself and recognizing your own value and your own worth and that you are too a divine being. And that, that related to this idea of us all being connected in this web together. And so for me, through studying the texts that, you know, tip into Buddhism and tip into Hinduism and even tip into mystical uh, Christianity, the, the yogic practice has really become my main way of like dealing 
with and moving through the world. And we could talk a whole other podcast about that. Can I just ask you what, um, or do you draw on different traditions of yoga or do you focus, you do you do your practice mainly within one of the traditions of yoga or, or schools? I don't know if traditions is the right word. I would say schools. So I originally started practicing Ashtanga yoga and that's a very uh, physically demanding practice that eventually I had to uh, stop because it blew out my shoulders and, and typical, typical yoga injuries. Um, and then as I started to deepen my understanding of the practice beyond the physical postures, sort of came down the, uh, the lineage of Krishnamacharya. And then my current teacher, I would say, is uh, T.S. Little, who's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he resonates as a teacher with me because he's, he's like a very beautifully faceted gem of a being. He's studied Buddhism. He's, he studied with Patabi Joyce, in, who's a, a, um, a, a Shtanga, now deceased, but uh, a Shtanga practitioner in India. Um, he's studied uh, cranial sacral work, and he's been a dancer. And he's, he just sort of, for me, has this like very robust understanding of the full complexity of, of the practice of being a person. <laughs> And so um, he's who I study mostly with now. Um, he has a very sophisticated way of thinking about and moving through this practice. And so that's where I am now. Tina, we've come to the end of our podcast. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? If you don't ask, they can't say yes. So be sure to ask. And, and also people want to help. People want to help. Well, I hope to see that momentum carry over to the Requiem Project. And again, for audience members interested in the project, there will be more information in the podcast blurb on the website. Tina, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. We look forward to seeing how the Requiem Project develops, and we wish you all the luck with it. Thank you very much, Todd. If you would like to know more about Tina Rath and her artwork and projects, please visit her website at www.tinarath.com. To find out more about the Requiem Project and how to provide your support through donations or contributions, please see the podcast blurb for links and social handles. You can contact the project directly with names of COVID-19 victims at requiemproject2021 at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share and subscribe. If you're interested in sponsoring Living Philosophy, please get in touch. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.